everybody this is brett and i'm christian and you're listening to the gilded films podcast 1946 edition Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Gilded Films podcast. In our classic episode, which picture was best? You, our humble listeners, are our fans. This is our last one of the big question for the year. More than likely, this is not the season finale, though, but life got in the way this year with me and Brett. So, you know, here we are. Very excited to do this one. Um, If you've been listening, this one has come quickly after our last one because we have a special sort of film to talk about that has to do with the season and the reason why we're talking about this specific year. It was a decent year, um, quote unquote decent, whatever. You'll see. It It was painful for a little bit of it. So, but here's always is me. Hi, it's Christian and Brett. Hello. Hello, hello. And our guest co-host today, when you last heard from her, she was simply Brett's girlfriend. But since that time, they got a dog. But more importantly, they became engaged. Welcome Brett's fiance, Haley, back to the show. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to be here. Hello. Thank you. Last time we saw you, it was for 2013, I believe. Yeah, Yeah, it's been a bit. Yeah, so like I said, they got a dog, so there's a dog now in the house. If you hear barking, it's Juno Andos. She is very vocal, and she likes to make herself known. She made herself known in the last episode, so but maybe she'll agree with us on some of these movies. Yeah, if you hear a lot of barking throughout our first film here, you'll definitely know why. So, But we'll get to that, obviously. But yes, like Christian said, we are talking about the year 1946. Um, Pick this for a very specific reason, which we will get to. Um, This is actually the quickest that we've ever watched five nominees for for this podcast. I mean, we recorded our last episode a week ago. I texted Christian earlier this week and was like, you know, how quick can we do this? Because we want to get this episode out before... The Christmas, you know, Christmas Eve, Christmas before the week of Christmas actually arrives. And so Christian was like, I got this. And I was like, I think I got this. Was I, I though? It was, it was more so, are you kidding me? And I was like, this is hell, but okay, we can do it. We made it work. We made it work. Um, we basically binged some of these and we definitely have thoughts. So, um, 1946, the Oscar ceremony took place March 13th of 47. The big winner, the the dominator this year was the best years of our lives. And so it took home best picture. It took home best director from William Wyler. That was actually the second win for him out of three for his career. I mean, win later for Ben-Hur. Best actress went to Olivia de Havilland for the film for each his own. Very um, good movie. Was, it is a good movie. Okay. I haven't seen it. So first of two wins for her on her third nomination. Best actor went to Frederick March for The Best Years of Our Lives. 
uh, the second lead actor win for him. Best Supporting Actress went to Anne Baxter for The Razor's Edge. Um, this was actually her first nomination. It was also the first and somewhat only nomination for Harold Russell, who won Best Supporting Actor for The Best Years of Our Lives. The reason I say somewhat is that he had a really interesting scenario at the Oscars where they not only nominated him for the competitive category, but they were thinking, you know, Harold Russell, he was not a professional actor. He was a World War II veteran who did lose both of his hands in combat. Um, and that's kind of what he portrays in the film. And they said, well, we don't think he's probably going to win, but we want to honor that. So we created an honorary Oscar for him and he ended up winning. So he walked away with two Oscars for the same performance in the you know, same movie. The only time that's ever happened, obviously. So that was fascinating. Um, best, best adapted screenplay. Interrupt you there really quick. Sorry. Remind me to tell you about the story of what happened to his Oscar. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Best adapted screenplay. This also went to the best years of our lives, meaning that it was a best actress went away from getting the big five. Um, you know, they're, you know, didn't have a nominee for best actress. So it was never going to have that chance, but it was very close. Uh, best original screenplay went to the seventh veil which seems a little bit random to me, but I don't know. Have you seen that movie? No, have not. Didn't even know what it was, and I looked it up. Yeah, same. Uh, so the best years of our lives won uh, three more in addition to that. It had the most wins with seven, um, and that's not including the honorary Oscar. Um, it also had the most nominations with eight, so it only lost one. It lost for sound recording. Oscars this year were hosted by Jack Benny, um, they were actually the first Oscars since the second Academy Awards that every category had at most five nominations. So nobody with like, didn't have 10 Best Picture nominees or anything like that. Um, in addition to Harold Russell, Laurence Olivier also won an honorary Oscar. They basically just said, hey, good job for doing Henry V, for directing it, producing it, uh, acting in it, whatever. Ernst Lubitsch also won an honorary Oscar just for um, like 25 years of contributions to the film medium, um, which is really kind of interesting because he actually died later that year. So um, got an honorary Oscar and then died in November, I believe. So yeah, that's what the Oscars were all about. It was the year of the best years of our lives. And so we will definitely talk about that one as well as all the others. Christian, are you ready to take us away with our first film? I am. <laughs> All right, here we go. So our first film is Henry V, sequel to Rocky IV and prequel to Rocky Balboa, because that would be the sixth one of that franchise. <clears throat> uh, so anyway, this is directed, of course, by Larry Olivier, as I like to call him, because, you know, um, <clears throat> what is there to say about Henry V? Well, with Henry V, there was plots, um, there was fighting, there was the hair, there was costumes, there was sets, and there was Laurence Olivier as Henry V. Henry V is about Henry V and his doings and his life. That is what Henry V 
is about Shakespeare. I did not like, nor did I understand, Henry the goddamn fucking fifth. Okay, I couldn't tell you a single thing about what this movie was about. I'm assuming that this was about him trying to get some land as all white men during this time wanted, you know? Um, but yeah, I asked myself halfway through, was there a Disney movie equivalent of this that I could have watched to understand better? Or was there a modern version of this that I could have understood better? Like, you know, the Lion in Winter is to King Lear or the Lion King is to Hamlet. But alas, poor Yorick, Hamlet reference, there was nothing. I don't know what this movie is about. I didn't like this movie. It's weird to look at. It's in color, but it's ugly. Um, it acts as if it's a play. And then it goes to the battlefields. There's sets that are fake as hell. They're very noticeable. It's not cute like it is in The Wizard of Oz with that beautiful Technicolor. What is there to say about Henry V, except it was a waste of my time. A lot of people in Letterboxd like this. They must like Shakespeare. They must kiss him on the ass. I don't kiss him on the ass. I've seen better Laurence Olivier Shakespeare's. This ain't it, sis. Go ahead. Um, I agree completely. Um, this is... Bringing it, bring it so much hate for this. We are. We are. This is... I, I don't like to overreact and go too much into superlatives, but this might be one of the most boring movies I've ever watched. Um, definitely not the best we've seen. It's no Disraeli. And, and I say that just because, like I said, Disraeli, I, I, it had no redeeming qualities. This one, like you said, it's got some decent costumes. Um, you know, the scenes on the battlefield are a moment where I was like at least a little bit more piqued in the interest, but it's still not a good battlefield scene either. Like it's still one of the most boring battlefield scenes I've ever seen. So I don't know. It's so weird to me. I Christian knows this. I've said it a thousand times. I'm going to say it again. I'm not a big Shakespeare guy. Granted, I haven't read a ton, but like my, my typical favorite, Shakespeare adaptations are like what you said, something like West Side Story or, or Lion King or, or Ron. Um, direct adaptations typically don't work for me. The New Tragedy of Macbeth, quick plug for that. That one actually really fucking worked. But this one, absolutely not. Um, I don't know, like, like I said, I'm not very familiar with Shakespeare, but who is going to say that Henry V is like one of their top five Shakespeare works? You know, like, I don't know anybody who likes Henry V or, like, is even that familiar with Henry V among friends I have that, that do like Shakespeare and have read his works. Um, and I just, I don't know. I can't imagine. I, the language is that Shakespearean language. It is so, like, ridiculous, honestly. It's, and I get it's something that was of the time. It was well-respected, res respect to Shakespeare for his influences, but it doesn't work for me, especially in 2021. Um, Laurence Olivier, I, it, it, to me, he's so forgettable. I, I really don't think he does much of anything with this role aside from deliver the lines. Um, it does this really, I'm interested to hear your guys' thoughts on this because it does this thing where it begins with the play in 1600 and like, we're with the crowd at the Globe Theater and they're watching the actors put on the play and then it shifts into 
the narrative as if we're in the 1400s and then it comes back. See, I don't know why. I don't know why that's a thing. Because if you're doing that, it should have been that they're putting the play on in the 1940s. Because this was released in England in 44. So during 44, maybe have some war scenes going on because, you know, World War II is still going on, you right. know, and then transition into it and say like, oh, look, the battles that are currently happening today in the world are the battles that Henry has faced, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's dumb. I mean, I like I don't know if they're trying to say like, oh, this is the type of thing that people would go see in the 1600s. Like we we know that it, it's a Shakespeare movie. I mean, yeah, I I just don't find much of this very redeemable not gonna lie i know this kind of ruins my you know, my um qualifications for reviewing this movie but i fell asleep through part of it um <laughs> he really did it was hilarious um i think it was just like 15 kidding. minutes but i i could not get myself to go back and watch what i missed so take this it as you a, will this is a movie where it's like if you don't get what's happening within the first half a second uh, like I didn't, I wasn't paying attention. You know why? I came back from West Side Story. I was on a West Side Story high. I watched this. I'm like, yeah, there's no Maria in this movie. <laughs> and that's thing too. Like I have no idea what, what happened in this movie. Like even when I was watching, when I was very attentive, I don't get it. And I even like read the Wikipedia plot synopsis and I'm like, I didn't get that at all. Like I, I don't, I have no idea where these plot points came from, but anyway, Haley, I disagree with you both. I thought it was the best film I've ever seen. It was absolutely wonderful. I love shit. No, I'm seriously kidding. That was the worst fucking movie I've ever watched in my life. And I have watched a lot of films because of Brett Doe's. So it was absolutely terrible. The main character, which forgive me, he's so unforgettable. I can't remember his name. Lawrence? What, who's the main character, dude? Like the, the main Henry? Character. The guy who plays, the guy who Henry. plays him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. You can call Henry. him you can call him Larry. <laughs> no, I know his name is Henry in yes, the Lawrence. movie. Lawrence but, okay. Yeah. Lawrence you can call him was Larry. Larry. Yeah. Okay. Well, Larry, man, you are so unforgettable and also very rapey towards the end of the movie. Unforgettable. Or Forgettable. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Forgettable. He also felt very rapey towards the end of the movie with like the French princess or queen or whatever. He kept telling her he was going to kiss her. And then she screamed and ran away. And he was like, I'm going to get her anyway. And I was like, sir, no, you're not. She said, no, leave her alone. And then, yeah, it was just terrible. Brett, you did not miss anything for the 15 minutes that you were asleep because it was that bad. You know, when we were watching this, honest, honestly, me and Toby, we were like, I really want to know what Haley thinks about this, that he has to put her through this to watch this garbage. We literally finished the movie. I turned that sucker off so quickly. And then I just glared at Brett. I was like, what did you just make me watch? I don't understand any like, of that. It's like, can you imagine people? I mean, they still consider Lawrence like one of the greatest interpreters of Shakespeare out there. And I, I've seen Hamlet. It's fine. I don't see it. I don't really even see from the minimal movies I've seen, whatever. I don't consider Olivier like a fine actor. Like, I don't care about him. 
Because again, I've seen this, I've seen Hamlet, and we saw Weathering Heights. Yeah, He's doing the same right. shtick. It's very boring. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like my my thing, if you're a great interpreter of Shakespeare, like how are you making it for a modern audience? Not just like, oh, he he reproduced it. Because that's what he did. I mean, he basically reproduced it and just filmed it. And, you know, it's not like something like Coruscant with Ron where like he placed that in a different, you know, location and did interesting things with it. It's not even like, like I said, the new tragedy of Macbeth, it, it's making it more cinematic to make it more accessible to audiences. And like, this doesn't do any of that. It, they, they give themselves away in the beginning when they literally are just filming the play. And right. so there's, I don't know, it doesn't add anything beyond that to me. It would also, have been better if they just filmed the play throughout the whole movie because I got more joy at the beginning when they were doing like funny little things that the crowd would laugh at. The heckling. Yes, that was funny versus like, here's a bunch of white men fighting over land that actually isn't theirs. Like that was just, I'm sorry. Literally every historical piece that's ever been done. Thank you very much. Like, I don't, I don't want to see it again. I don't Mm. care if you're Shakespeare or the fucking king of the world. Like, I don't want to see it. Did you read like when this premiered originally? About it being like a morale booster and yeah, for D Day. Yeah, okay. Like you you think the troops are really gonna sit there and be like, oi, governor. Shakes like Henry V. Also, yeah. I'm sorry, but if you're a troop, like going through such a terrible time, why do you want to? Why would you want to watch a movie about another terrible time with war? Like, give me something to take my mind off of war, please. That would be nice. I will say too, I really want to see though the Kenneth Branagh version of this because I hear the Kenneth Branagh version is lit. Yeah, I actually did. I saw that the reviews of that were actually really good. Um, so I'd be interested to at least, I don't know, maybe check it out. I was hyped. I was hyped the fuck up for the St. Crispin's day speech. Cause one of my teachers in high school had mentioned it to me and stuff. And like started quoting it. And I was like, yeah, this is going to be so cool. And then it's like halfway through the speech. And I'm like, oh wait, he just said, oh, this is it. Oh, well, mm, okay. Yeah. I also, I also read on Wikipedia that like, um, Olivier, actually did omit a few things from the play that was some of the more like terrible stuff that the Henry V character does and it's just like oh so so that's yeah I think that kind of goes into morale booster in a weird way it's almost like a an English propaganda film you know for World War II um in its own kind of weird odd way and honestly I think that I, I'm probably completely off on this, but I feel like the Academy was more so like, we don't love this film, but we're going to respect it. Um, because like they, they gave Olivier that big honorary award. They didn't even nominate him for director, you know? So it's like, and I get, it's not a big round table thing, but like, I don't know. It got two technical nominations and then picture an actor. Um, it's not like a, a wide sweeping Oscar success or anything like that. I don't even understand how it got nominated. Like it was that bad to me. I don't yeah. like I I don't understand. 
We're bringing you back for whenever we do Hamlet. Oh, God. I will have more words. (laughs) I will throw hands. And in that case, he wins. Yes, he wins. I will throw hands. Uh, I already did spoil this a little bit, but Christian, do you want to go over all the awards that this was up for and all that stuff? I mean, I guess. Um, So he got an honorary because, you know, and then picture actor for him, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, art direction for the color art direction, which again, it's not that good. And the score. Like it's so okay. So like, let me tell you how the art direction is. If nobody watches this movie, which we're not recommending it. So think of the Wizard of Oz. Think of the background scenes of Munchkinland, how they're all painted. But like your eyes kind of tell you that's that looks real. Like that looks like they built that back there. No, no, no. You can definitely tell that this is painted, fake as fuck. Yes. Like it's ugly. Yeah. Okay. The most redeeming quality, honestly, to me, it wasn't the costumes. It was the hair, the bowl cuts. <laughs> they were ugly, but they were pretty ugly. Yeah, the hair was funny. Yeah. And there was like the one guy who was probably gay, and he was like, "Yo, Henry, that's that weird." I was like, "I don't care." <laughs> He was coded, okay? Oh, geez. Oh, also, I think, see, I didn't even care to look up a cast in this. One of the the doctor from The Bride of Frankenstein, I'm pretty sure is in this movie. Just, I don't know. Oh. Yeah, and I can only tell you that because he's like The Bride of Frankenstein. Go watch The Bride of Frankenstein. Don't watch this. There you go. Anything other than this. (laughs) Watch your grandma take out her dentures before you watch this. <laughs> and if you like this movie and you disagree with us, we don't care. Yeah, we're going to get like three one-star reviews um, from Shakespeare stands who are upset that I fell asleep during their movie and still assessed it. So whatever. You know what? Maybe they should make a very funny 2022 version of this that takes place in present day. And then I could get behind it. Like a bunch of hooligans just laughing and yelling about things. I don't know. Anything. Maybe it can be a TikTok battle instead of a real battle. I see it now. I see the battlefield. We'll set it on January the 6th. Oh, my God. Oh, God, no. (laughs) Because we're going to go to the Capitol. No. And there's more fans like, what? <laughs> See, honestly, though, if we would have had a modern version already, which because I looked, I saw, I looked, I looked, I didn't have anything to compare this to. Oh, geez. All right. Any final thoughts on Henry V? Don't watch it. Ever. I, yeah. Yep. It's on HBO. <laughs> it is. It is on HBO Max. <laughs> I always have to plug where it is in case you do, but it's on HBO. If you love Henry V, that's like your favorite Shakespeare work, then I can go for it. But Also, if that is your favorite Shakespeare work, I'm really concerned about you. (laughs) Just really concerned. All right. Well, we obviously don't recommend that one. If you think that was boring, wait till you hear about this one. Oh, come on now. I'm not going to give you a hint of what I thought. Christian. That is an overreaction. But our next film is um, The Razor's Edge. 
And so this is a film from director Edmund Goulding. And, but I will say, I told this about to Christian about like three or four times, but when I hear the title and like, look at the poster for this movie, I thought it was like a film noir. Um, it is very much not a film noir. Um, but what it is, is basically the story of this man, Larry Darrell, who's played by Tyrone Power. Um, he is a, he was a pilot during World War II and he comes back from, World, or sorry, World War I. Um, he comes back from World War I, is kind of traumatized by the whole thing and really comes into this personal crisis and conflict about trying to figure out what life is really all about um, and trying to find his direction and kind of what life means for him. Um, he had a, a really good friend who died during the war. And that's definitely kind of what led to this is like, you know, he died there. What did he leave with? You know, what am I going to leave with? And so this complicates things because he wants to take time to kind of travel throughout Europe and kind of find what that means for him, um, which is a problem because he is engaged to be married to um, Isabel, who is played by Jean Tierney. But he goes off. Um, he kind of does his own thing. They do have some like little short meetups along the way. Um, basically, he's out kind of doing his own thing and trying to figure out what life means. What, what does that mean? And so along the way, he there are some characters that kind of come into play. Um, Isabel's, um, I think it's actually her uncle, um, who's played by Clifton Webb. He is kind of like her parental figure and is pretty upset with Larry for going and doing this. He also has a great childhood friend named Sophie, who's played by Ann Baxter, um, who has her own issues because her husband and child die in a car crash. And so she kind of falls into alcoholism and depression. And when Larry eventually does come back, he's kind of caught in this triangle in that he wants to support Sophie and he's originally going to be married to her. But even though Isabel is already married, she still wants to be with Larry. And so she kind of tries to work things in a pretty manipulative fashion to try to get back with him. And so I thought the movie was fine. I thought it was okay. I, I think it's really interesting because I, what this character goes through, again, he has a lot of like privilege to be able to do this. But I think a lot of people at some point in life you know, don't want to go right into the whole routine of like, I go to work, my eight to five, I go home, blah, blah, blah. I want to go out and explore and like figure out what my life is and what this really means for me. Um, I wish everybody had the opportunity to do that at some point to travel and see the world and like kind of figure that out. Um, I wish the film had just kind of focused on that process for him a little bit more. His first kind of trip through Europe, it doesn't really dive into that a whole lot. It actually spends more time with the other characters and it doesn't really get to his personal journey until he's in India and he kind of goes up this mountain and has this real spiritual awakening. Um, but overall, I, I think my main issue with this movie is I, I think it spends a little bit too much time on some of the other characters, particularly like Gene Tierney and like Clifton Webb. Um, I will say Ann Baxter's character was to me the most interesting in the movie because she goes through this very severe heartbreak has to do with alcoholism um, and kind of her trying to rebound from that and all the complications she has along the way. I thought that whole storyline was really interesting. And I actually think Ann Baxter is very good here. Um, I, I mean, I can see why she won Best Supporting Actress. But 
On the one hand, I'm glad there were characters like her and Larry that were interesting. On the other hand, I do think it's kind of an issue that she's so much more interesting than the lead. Um, and, you know, kind of, I wish, I kind of wish the movie was more about her than anybody else. So overall, I, I think that the movie is definitely too long. It de- didn't need the time that it took to tell this story, but it does have really interesting ideas, even if they don't always fully come to fruition. Okay. Um, so on the flip side of that, I didn't care for it. I thought Ann Baxter was really good. Um, again, probably going to get a lot of hate here, but I did not realize that Jean Tierney was in this until maybe halfway through the movie. I thought that that was Ann Baxter. So sorry to the Jean Tierney <laughs> fans out there. I can't tell my right from my left. Um, I'm not a big fan of the eat, pray, love type movies. And that's what this was. I texted Brett through it and I was like, there's a lot of characters in this. I have no idea. I literally have no idea who's who. I don't really care for anybody in this. Um, Somerset Ma, who wrote the book, is a character in this. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, there's a there's a Golden Girls quote where Sophia's like, who do you think I am? Somerset Ma? That's the Golden Girls reference. But other than that, it's fine. I think the best thing is Anne Baxter in this. Even Tyrone Power, who, like, he's a good-looking actor for the day, but I didn't care about him. I didn't care about anything. I didn't care about anybody except Ann Baxter, and it should have just all been about her. I don't know why it's called The Razor's Edge. I didn't look into the deeper meaning of it. But you know what? It would have been a, it's a, it's a remake with Bill Murray, which I told Brett not to do like Zay and <laughs> watch that one instead. But maybe that one's better. Who knows? This wasn't for me. I really enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> off opinion. I feel dead. <laughs> no, I I would say Brett's like in the middle. You obviously didn't like it. And I really enjoyed it. Um, I think the reason I enjoyed it so much was because I felt like it accurately defined portrayed what depression is like for some people and how that can hurdle you into different things like alcoholism, things like that. Um, and it just, I, I thought it did a good job of portraying that. I also thought it did a good job of, you know, like when you watch some movies and the main character ends up with the girl, even though we might not really enjoy her or whatever like life circumstances just like work out magically and they get to be together I really appreciated that that didn't happen in this movie like he realized that she was a shitty person because she was like Isabel was a shitty ass person who I did not like I really grew to hate her throughout the entire movie and I just really appreciated that Larry didn't end up with Isabel because if that would have happened I would have hated that and I also just appreciated like the fact that when he came back right from world war one he didn't just like settle into life like Mm -hmm. a lot of people who come back 
from those experiences don't just settle into life, right? Like they have PTSD, they change their lives. They decide they want to go out and do something else. They want to find something to live for. And that is really, really common with people with PTSD and also with people who come back from experiences like World War One. So I, I just thought it accurately portrayed a lot of life things. Um, I don't think it needed to be as long as it was at all. I'm going to be frank. I didn't think any of these movies other than the one. It's one for life. I didn't think we could say it yet. We'll get to it. Okay. Well, the one Christmas movie that I'm not going to say, because I don't want to be the one that spoils it for you all, even though Brett just did. Um, that one can be as long as it wants because I love it. But the rest of them did not need to be over two hours long. Here's what I would say. I, I would say that I think one thing we all agree on is the Sophie storyline, like Ann Baxter. I think we all really enjoyed that. Um, cut out some of the stuff with like Jean Tierney's character. Because I agree, like she's not likable at all. You know, and the movie spends a lot of time with her and her uncle, who is also not very likable. And I think if you took some of that out, maybe had a little bit more of Larry in his travels and a little bit more between the period where Sophie's family dies and she becomes an alcoholic, that would work a lot better because like, that's how it works is Sophie, you know, her, her, her family dies. We don't see her for a long stretch of the movie. And then all of a sudden we see her at her lowest. Um, so I think if we had a little bit more time to grow with that character, the film would have been a lot better off. But right. But I, I really you know, it shouldn't have been that long because I right. I don't know. And then like the whole enlightening moments, like this got really, really meta all of a sudden. <laughs> like, yeah, go to India, meet with like, you know, the mystical man, be enlightened, live out your white man dreams. Yeah. Okay, but have you ever listened to a cult podcast? Because that's how it all happens. You come back from something traumatic and then they suck you in with enlightenment ideals and then you're a part of a cult and you didn't even know it. So maybe he was really just a part of a cult and we don't know it. A 1940s style cult. Well... Well, World War One, a 1920s style cult. <laughs> but no, I um, yeah, I, I did like Clif- Clifton Webb, I will say. Even though I don't like the character, I think Clifton Webb does really well with that role, especially like his final scenes. Um, because he kind of has a, a little bit of redemption, but yeah, I don't know. Jean Tierney, part of it was her character, but just didn't do it for me. Um, and so it's kind of weird. I don't like Tyrone power is the main character here, but I didn't see him as the main character. I thought as everybody else in this was supporting him to the fact like he's the character we all talk about. We don't really see him. And maybe that's just me because I really wasn't super focused on this lot going on. I watched this in two parts because I didn't care. I don't know. This is my second time seeing this too, so. I think it's fair because I don't think he's on screen as much as a a film that's supposed to be about him and like he's lead character would suggest. Mm -hmm. But 
Um, this did get one Oscar win. We mentioned Ann Baxter won for Supporting Actress. Um, it was nominated for three others. So Best Picture, Supporting Actor for Clifton Webb, and the Art Direction for Black and White. Um, you would think something like this got a lot more nominations to its name. I Yeah, I was kind of surprised it was so, so little as well. Um, but yeah, that's all I ended up with. Hmm. Well, that is The Razor's Edge, not a noir film like I thought it was. Um, but any final thoughts on that one before we go into our next film? If you think that was something, wait till this little cute romp comes around. Where can we find that movie, Christian? Nowhere. <laughs> I don't wait. Where did you guys watch it? Oh, see, she made where, where does she suggest the dog is barking? <laughs> Juno suggests that you all watch this movie because it was really good. Um, and I think we found it on Amazon. We rented it from Amazon, I'm pretty sure. Okay, so you can rent it there. I got it from the library, so. But don't rent it from Amazon because who really wants to support Jeff Bezos? The only reason we rented it from Amazon is because we had to watch all these movies in two days. Hmm. All right. Well, our, our cute romp that comes up next is a film called The Yearling. All right. So this is the story of a, uh, a family that lives in kind of like, I want to say like 18, sometime 1800s, late 1800s. Um, I don't know if it ever gives us a specific year, but they are kind of a farming family who lives on their own kind of little bit of little settlement. Um, the father here is Penny Baxter, who's played by Gregory Peck. Um, he has his wife, Ori Baxter, played by Jane Wyman. Um, and then there is young Jody, who is played by uh, Claude Jarman Jr. Child performance, he's probably like 10 or 11 years old here. Not sure if he did much beyond this, um, but Basically, they, it kind of goes through their process of like how they are kind of making it work and surviving. They rely on their crops, um, sometimes rely on like hunting, keeping the bears away who are destroying their cattle and whatnot, um, and just trying to make things work basically. And so that's really kind of what the first half of this movie is, is just kind of exploring their day-to-day -day life, um, which covers all that. It covers their familial relationship. Um, it also kind of covers their love-hate relationship with their neighbors. Um, and that kind of takes some interesting directions. But where the title of this film kind of really comes in is that about halfway through, um, the father gets a snake bite and he kind of, he kills a, a, a doe deer to, I guess, use like liquids from its liver to like help with the bite. I'm not entirely sure how that all works. But anyway, this doe had a fawn who of course now is motherless and the boy decides to kind of take the, the fawn under its wing and raise it. And so this starts off really cute. You know, he kind of takes care of it, treats it like a pet The the fawn takes to the family and um, seems to, you know, enjoy having that home, but things become complicated as the fawn grows older, starts eating the crops, jumping the fences and basically misbehaving, I guess, quote unquote, if you want to call it that. And so what the film is really about is more so 
this young boy having to learn kind of like adult responsibilities and hard lessons, but also it's really interestingly about the relationship between him and his mom. Um, because we find out that this couple tried to have kids for many years. A lot of them died, you know, stillborn or, or didn't make it. And so how it's resulted is that the mom and the son actually kind of have a bit of a contentious relationship. It's like, she is afraid to really love him and be affectionate towards him because of what she's experienced with losing her children before and kind of that fear of, of losing him and just kind of having too much of an affectionate relationship with him. And so, I don't know, it's kind of hard for me to describe the plot of this film just because a lot of it is kind of static and just kind of exploring their lives. I think this is another one where it is definitely too long, um, simply because I don't think we need all of the buildup and the setting that it gives us in the first half. I think where this film really kicks in is when the deer arrives. Um, and that happens like an hour into the movie. And so, but I do find the relationship between um, the son and the father, as well as the son and the mother, pretty interesting and kind of how the story develops those relationships. Um, and obviously the lessons that the kid has to earn. I think it's kind of weird how those lessons come about um, and kind of the, the harsh reality behind that all. Um, in some ways it did kind of remind me of like a, a live action Disney movie, like Old Geller or something. Uh, Christian, do you agree? Me too. Oh yeah. my God. I was, okay. I was going to bring up the point of uh, when I was watching this, I was telling Toby, I'm surprised Disney didn't get his hands on this because this is something that he would have definitely made with like the, you know, the wild frontier and stuff and thinking of Disneyland, like where's the yearling ride where, you know, you shoot a deer, but then you say <laughs> deer, something like that. I feel the same way. That's fun. That's funny. Yeah, that's exactly the mood I got. Like this reminded me a lot of like old Yeller, classic like Disney live action animal movies, but it does have some very heartbreaking stuff. Um, it, it's in Technicolor, you know, so it's got that going for it. I have some thoughts about the cinematography that we'll get to, but um, it's kind of interesting how it just kind of takes its time until it finally really gets into the actual narrative for me. This movie could have been an hour long instead of two hours and eight minutes. Like Brett said, I don't think all the backstory that happened at the beginning needed to be there. Again, I think this is true with all of these movies. They don't need to be as long as they are. That said, um, I thought it was cute. Like when he found the little deer and took in the deer, I was mortified when the deer started eating the corn and when this boy went through all this trouble to build this damn fence and then that motherfucker jumped it and started eating more corn. I was so mad. I was like, oh God, they're going to have to kill the fucking deer. Because Bambi's that's revenge. what you do. <laughs> what? Bambi's revenge. <laughs> I mean, no shit. But that's, I mean, but that's what you do. Like they're, they're a nuisance to crops. And if that's what you're living off of, you have to take out the deer because the deer isn't just going to go away after you've let it live there. It's whole little baby life. Like mm -hmm. it knows that as home. And it also knows it as food source. 
So that part was frustrating to me because I was like, oh, damn it, Jody, you're going to have to kill the deer. And then when Jody ran away, that was an interesting moment because how many times have little kids said like, I'm going to run away and I'm never coming back. But he like legit ran away. And if people wanted to found him, that boy would be dead because, you know, time that this took place in. You don't just like get a ride home from your neighbor. You're in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. with no way Fl- to travel. In, I think they're in Florida. So he's in the swamps. It's Yeah. I, I was going to say, yeah, they're in a very like foresty area. Yeah. Pretty, pretty remote. But it's hot. Yeah. It's hot it. down there. He had blisters all over his face. Mm-mm, not good. Um, And then I was. people don't hear I'm sorry this was the most unrealistic part of the film for me was when he was gone for like three days and he came back and he looked all cleaned up and everything and I was like yo nobody heals blisters like the ones he had on his face in three days that's not possible but whatever um and then I thought it was really sweet at the end of the movie when you see the silhouette of the boy running through the field with the deer, I took that to be his friend that had passed away in the little deer, not mm. like a dream of him in the little deer. So I took it as him like remembering that his friend gets to be with the little deer now. So it was actually a happy ending because they get to be friends together up in heaven. And I just thought that was really sweet. Hmm. Wow. That's so touching. <laughs> also, I think that little boy, his friend was like 20 years old at the time of this movie. <laughs> Isn't that something? Um, but no, I like I liked it. I've seen this before. It's cute. It's Bambi, you know. Mm-hmm. But I do agree with the both of you where it is kind of long. This should have been an hour and a half because I from what I d- I don't remember anything about this, but I thought this was going to be mostly about the boy and the deer. And it's like the first hour is the boy and the dad and then the deer comes along or uh-huh. whatever. It's like, like movies are very, at this time, notorious for chopping a lot of details out. Maybe do that, especially when the, you know, the image we know the most is him holding the deer. And it's like, look, I got a deer here. This, this is what I come for. This is what I want to see. I want to see the kid growing up with this random animal and then old yellering the hell out of him. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but uh, Mrs. Ronald Reagan, the first, not the dick sucker, is in this. <laughs> uh, and I, the, for the for the longest time when watching this, I'm like, she looks like Mandy Moore in This Is Us. To which I got no response from Toby because he's like, "Who's Mandy Moore?" And I'm like, "Okay, well." Oh my God, Toby! I know. And I'm like, okay, never mind. I'm alone on this one. But she does. Um, but she's fine. She she gives the same face throughout the whole movie. Yeah, I got that relationship, but also like I didn't because wouldn't you if you had like kids die and you finally like have one that's alive be excited? Right. I don't she's know. very cold. I, she's very I, cold through this, you know. Yeah. I just I, like, I don't know. I bought that because I was like, I because I thought about that too, but I was also like, I don't know. I, I think she's just so, she was attached to all of the potential kids she was going to have. And then like, 
she's too afraid to get attached because they obviously live in a place where like they almost get killed by a bear and they almost get bit. And like, I just think she's so afraid to get too attached that her heart's going to be even more broken that she's cold as a result. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I thought she was pretty awesome. I mean, I don't know. Like I, I get the, the whole thing about like, she's, she doesn't emote very much, but I think that's kind of like rare for a role like that. Um, just because I, I don't know. I really like the scene in the beginning where she goes to visit the graves of, of like the stillborn yeah. children. I think that's a really essential scene for the movie. Um, and she, I thought she was great there. And then of course, just as it develops along the way, when she does finally emote at the end of the movie, I think it's just that much more of a payoff personally. It's also, I don't know this. It's like, because she has the op, she, not the opportunity. Damn, damn, Christian go dark. The, the chance to lose her husband after he gets bitten, mm-hmm. you know? So you don't really want to lose this guy if your kid is still a kid. He's still, you know, quote unquote, the yearling. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. um, he's, he's still he's still young and he really hasn't learned how to be a man. He hasn't learned everything his father has to teach him yet. So it's like, if the father goes, what's going to happen to both of them? Right. I mean, I'm sure she'll find, you know, she'll find the richest man, the richest sleaze bag in town. <laughs> Which I was, first of all, I was very shocked. There was a town here. I don't know if this is Florida. Let's just say this is the beginning of Orlando, Florida. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I um, I, I do kind of like the connection between the boy and the deer and how they, they are both like yearlings. Um, that's kind of interesting. And um, this- oh, believe me, when he was like, he's not a yearling no more. I, yeah. We were like, oh, that's what that means. Gregory Peck, I feel like this is kind of an audition for To Kill a Mockingbird because they're similar in some ways about like him being this like this father that the kids clearly very much look up to who's trying to teach them life lessons. I think Gregory Peck does really good work here. It's something that he would perfect later on, you know, with To Kill a Mockingbird. But he's actually a pretty good dad in um, uh, Gentleman's Agreement, which is the next year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Gentleman's Agreement's a shitty film. I also wanted to mention the cinematography because I think for most of the movie, it's really good. Um, nothing like extreme, you know, it, it's, a, it's a nice Technicolor movie set. It ain't no Henry VIII. Henry, Henry the Eighth. What's, what's Henry the Fifth? I bumped if there's a Henry the Eighth, I'm not watching it. <laughs> But there are t- there are two scenes that like bothered the hell out of me out of me because for the most part the cinematography looks very natural. It looks like they just like shot in an outdoor setting. The funeral scene there is clearly a painted background, um, like purple and whatnot, and like it looks so fake. Like you can totally tell that it was just painted during that scene, and that bothered the hell out of me. It also happens the scene after the storm. They like it's clearly a painted sky. And I'm like, just stick with the natural kind of cinematography throughout. It would just work a lot more better. A lot better. We're a, MG- lot we're a lot better. more better. It would work a lot more better. We're MGM. We have the money, so fuck off. <laughs> a uh, lot more better. <laughs> so this one had two competitive Oscar wins. Um color cinematography and color art direction oh yeah the honorary Oscar. i missed this um claude darman jr got the academy juvenile award uh for his performance 
Also had five additional nominations for Best Picture, Director, Actor for Gregory Peck, Actress for Jane Wyman, and Film Editing. Which makes me kind of think Best Years of Our Lives was like the one this year. The Yearling may have been the runner-up. I mean, it was the other one who had all these nominations. I mean, mm-hmm. Razor's Edge had four. Henry V had four. The one we're going to talk about next didn't get a single win. I, I think this was the next one up, to be honest. I mean, who's to say? Who's to say? But if imagine, was- imagine, if we will, the other Mrs. Ronald Reagan, Nancy Davis, was in this... She'd be sucking every dick in Hollywood to get the Oscar for this. <laughs> and if you're a, not an avid fan of social media, you're like, why is Christian bringing on? this subject up? Look it up. You won't be, you won't be disappointed. Also, Claude Jarman Jr., um, he retired in the 70s, I read. He was at the 2002 Oscars where they did the like, welcome back to everybody who's ever won something. Uh, and then he wrote a book like three years ago about his career. Yeah. I wondered what his career, I didn't really look into it, but like his IMD, IMDb picture is literally the poster of the yearling. So I, I assume that was definitely his most notable role. Let's see. Let's find a picture. See what he looked like. Oh, okay. He has a child's face still. <laughs> How cute. All right. I'm going to send this all to you. Course. But yeah, the yearling um, definitely one we'd recommend, but perhaps lightly. Um, any final thoughts on that before going to our next film? I don't know why Bambi had to die. <laughs> I mean, I do, but I don't. For the second time. You think they made meat out of the deer? <laughs> I wondered that. <laughs> no, I legit wondered that. I was like, ooh. Wow jerky um (laughs) you said jerky she wants some all right so our next film is actually the reason we watched these so quickly to get this out you know in time for the holidays we also even switched up the order here um so that we could this could be one of our final ones we talked about if you haven't guessed already it is of course it's a wonderful life it's brett's favorite film Third favorite. One of them. Okay, but one of his favorite <laughs> films. Nope, haven't given up on Casablanca. No, but this is really, it, it is a top five movie for me. Um, directed by Frank Capra. Haven't seen it. G- gotta go out there and watch it. In fact, pause this podcast, go watch this movie, um, and then come back to us. But and if you're listening to this on Christmas Eve, it's more than likely on tonight. Check your local NBC affiliates. Yes, absolutely. Um, so It's a Wonderful Life is the story of George Bailey. It's played by Jimmy Stewart. Um, when we first meet him, he's just a young boy. Um, and these angels are kind of watching him because we, we, all we know is it's his big day. It's his crucial day. We don't really know why yet. Um, but we know that everybody is praying for him. And first, it kind of gives us a little bit of his life story. And so what we kind of come to figure out both even in childhood and throughout his early adult life, this is a man who is selfless, um, who will do what he needs to do to help other people from his little brother 
um, to the people of his hometown, Bedford Falls, which is in New York. Um, but he basically grows up during this time and he always has these big aspirations. You know, first one is that he's going to go, he's going to work for four years after high school, build up money to travel the world and then go to college. Um, things happen. His father dies. His father was the owner of the, the building and loan in town, which helps people with like building homes and financing them, especially kind of low income folks who live in town. His father dies and um, the evil man who lives in town, uh, Mr. Potter, played by Lionel Barrymore, wants to shut it all down and basically buy out everybody, put them in slums and kind of turn the town into his big you know, profit. Um, so George gets roped into that. He ends up staying to save the building and loan. He gives his college funds to his little brother, Harry, who basically gets to go and live the dream and get a big job after graduating and um, whatnot. But along the way, George, his, his dreams change a little bit. He, he takes on new things. He gets married to Mary Hatch, who's played by Donna Reed. They have four kids and he helps people more and more as his time goes on while living in Bedford Falls. But it all kind of comes to a head on Christmas Eve where when his um, uncle Billy played by Thomas Mitchell and his coworker loses $8,000 and George has to find a way to either find it or, or get a loan so that he is not put in jail. Um, and that leads him to kind of consider different things, including to complete suicide um, just to get out of this and kind of leads him to believe that the world would just be better off if he wasn't there. Enter the angel second class doesn't have his wings yet. He is played by Henry Travers. His name is Clarence. And it's his goal to basically show George Bailey the value of his life so he can change his mind. And I realized that plot description kind of goes over nearly the whole movie, but I think that's what you have to go in with. That's what you have to know about It's a Wonderful Life to really know what this movie is about. It's about a man who gives up so much and is so helpless to other people without ever doing much for himself, struggling with kind of what value he brings to the world, whether he makes it a better place, whether the people he knows are better off without him and having to be shown by an angel, no less, what his value is and um, what life would be like without him there. And to show him just how much he enjoys life, even though he didn't get to do all the things he wants to do, just to show George Bailey how great his life really is with all the people he has in it. Um, as I mentioned, I obviously love this movie. I think it looks terrific in the original black and white. I've actually never seen the color version. I just can't get myself to do it. Um, I, Christian has. Uh, Christian and I actually saw this in theaters once together. Um, definitely shed some tears. There, I, I, you know, at least come close every time I watch this movie. There are some lines throughout that just hit me every single time. Um, I'm sure we'll get into some of those. But I think what's really just kind of fascinating about this movie is that to me, this is the quintessential Christmas movie. It's the one like absolutely must watch every single year. And not much of the movie actually takes place on Christmas, which is really fascinating um, that it kind of has this status now. So Jimmy Stewart is absolutely fantastic. It's my favorite performance of his. He completely embodies George Bailey, who is just an absolutely fantastic character. One of my favorite characters in movie history. Donna Reed is also terrific. Uh, Henry Travers, Lionel Barrymore, 
Thomas Mitchell, the whole cast is terrific. Um, everybody plays their roles so well. And yeah, I, I got so much more I could go into, but I want to get y'all's thoughts first. So let's leave it at that. I loved this movie so much. Um, I think part of the reason I love it so much, I'm not going to lie, is because when I met Brett, we spent our first like holiday season or whatever together as boyfriend and girlfriend. And he asked me if I had ever seen It's a Wonderful Life. And I said, no, I had never seen the movie. Um, same with Casablanca. What's your second favorite? Yes, I'm Lewin Davis. And yeah, I have I had never seen any of these films before I met Brett. And this is by far my favorite out of his top favorites that I enjoy watching with him. And it's become a tradition every single year now for us to watch this movie together. And I just love it so much. I love Mary Hatch. I love that Mary and George end up together. I love to hate Mr. Potter. I love Clarence. He's like so innocent and so sweet throughout the film. And I won't spoil it, but it's just, the ending is just so great. Just wait, just you wait. If you haven't watched this film, please do yourself a favor, skip Henry the fucking fifth, watch this film five times over. It is so, so, so good. I think my favorite scene in the whole movie is when George is talking about how he will lasso the moon for Mary. And my second favorite scene is the end of the film. And then third... I mean, the fact that I have multiple favorite scenes tells you something. Third favorite scene is definitely when George and Mary go on their honeymoon and they don't actually get to go on their honeymoon because George is just such a good man and is helping out the people in his town. But Mary goes through all of this work to fix up this old house with people that are in the town to make it look like all of their honeymoon destinations. And it's just a magical, magical moment. The whole film is just absolutely magical. A perfect film. Yes. That's it. That's all I got. No. Okay. Um, no, it's perfect film. I agree with you both on everything. I love this. It took me only until about 10 years ago to finally see this because I've always been aware of it on TV, like the Christmas Eve showings. I never watch it on Christmas Eve because I hate watching commercials. Um, so I, I try to watch it during this month. I've noticed on my letterbox, it's been, I normally watch it the, near the Christmas like day time, but you know, earlier, whatever. Uh, sad story, maybe 2016 Christian wasn't like the best thing happening in his life. And when I watched this, it kind of really turned my life around. I didn't have a whole lot going on in terms of like, you know, wanting to be okay and sane. You can read my 2016 review because I write about all of this in it. But the one line that really gets to me is um, the one that Clarence says, and I love Clarence. I think he's one of the best characters like ever written for a film. Um, if we were to divide up, you know, supporting actor and supporting actress in our personals, like super, super personals, 
Um, he's my personal winner. I mean, you don't see him for the last 20 minutes of this film, but it's like Henry Travers does such a great job there. But anyway, my favorite line that he says is um, strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? And that line alone, like it, like it saved me. Let's let's just put it that way. It saved me in 2016. And I think this movie saves a lot of people. If you watch it at a time where you're struggling or you're like, why am, why am I here? Does anybody even fucking care? It's like, yeah, they do. Because look, look at everything that George has. He just didn't see it because he got so stressed out about one sort of insignificant thing that he thought was going to ruin his entire life. But in reality, he had not even an army behind him. He had a whole, well, yeah, he had an army behind him. He had the whole fucking town behind him. The entire population of the town, save, of course, Mr. Potter, behind this man, you know. And yeah, it's a perfect film. It's a film robbed. It won nothing. Right. I I don't, it won nothing. It didn't win a single Oscar. That just bugs me. Um, I think At least it was nominated, though. Yes, it was nominated. That that would have been such a huge oversight. But like, you know, you, you've got the above the line stuff, like best picture, the direction is great, the, the performances are great. But I think even below the line, this film is like masterfully edited with how it manages the story and like shows us different points in George's life. The scenes at the end when it begins snowing, it looks gorgeous. I mean, the, the cinematography, especially that that iconic scene where... George is running through the town and say, Merry Christmas. And it's beautiful, the moving camera and whatnot. But I don't know. I, I really like the scene that Haley mentions of the run. Um, Cause another thing about this movie is that it, it, it does take place at points in history. So we see a bank run during the great depression. That's the scene where um, George and Mary are, are giving out their entire saves, their entire savings um, to save the building alone and help the townspeople out. But also, and I'm going to reveal the ending. We're going to talk about it because it's a classic. It's been out long enough. Positive. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. But how that flips in the end from George handing out all the money to everybody handing money to him in the end. Um, it's just extremely powerful just to see the character do all these things for so many different people. And then for that to, to really pay off. To, to understand that people are appreciative of that and they don't forget um, and realize that they wouldn't be here without him. Um, I get especially emotional over like George and Mr. Gower, um, especially in the flashback where we see like if George hadn't been there, Mr. Gower would be homeless after spending 20 years in prison. And it's just reminded the little things that you do in life that really impact people can be so much bigger than you think at the time. I mean, even like when Clarence is like, well, there's no Harry because Harry died in the war because you weren't there to save Harry. So all these random people who you've never met, you've never been connected to by your brother are dead because you were never there. Right. It's fascinating. Um, And once again, Lionel Barrymore, to me, that's a quintessential movie villain performance. I mean, like Haley said, you love to hate him. He is absolutely despicable, but Barrymore is just perfect for that role the voice can't be matched um and it just i like that i like the capper uses his stock actors like barrymore and mm-hmm. um mitchell and stuff that you've seen in other of his films you yeah. know absolutely and i know that he's in the wheelchair because he's you know the arthritis by this point is really crippling him 
but it's like he's so much sinister in that wheelchair yes like this man can't barely get around but he can get around in other ways right also shout out gloria graham i love her um pretty small role here but she does play um she is significant she's violet um and so um always love seeing her show up too since we're talking about the end of this movie I just want to point out that one of my favorite points of the whole film is when they're talking about Clarence and they're talking about how he doesn't have his in- like his angel wings yet because he's no offense to Clarence but kind of a dimwit like he's not <laughs> he's not the brightest angel that there is mm-hmm. but he is for sure like the most faithful sweetest most wonderful angel that there is and then you know they talk about how every time a bell rings an angel gets his wings and then at the end of the movie george bailey goes to pick up his daughter zuzu and she goes daddy teacher says every time a bell rings an angel gets its wings and he is just so overjoyed and he kind of looks up and you know he's like talking about Clarence and it's just so it's just such a wholesome moment where even though Clarence hasn't been in the movie for the last like 20 minutes or whatever because he's gone back and George is running through the town trying to get home and Mm -hmm. whatnot he's still there and Clarence got his wings and it's just like a happy ending for everyone except for fucking Mr. Potter because we love to hate him (sighs) And I hope he didn't have a Merry Christmas, Mr. Steal $8,000 and ruin somebody's life. I would like to see his manservant join in that party at the very end. I know. Here's a couple bucks. So two of my favorite lines in this movie actually are within like a couple minutes of each other. Um, One of them is um, the maid, Annie. She brings the money and like gives it to George she's like I was saving this for a divorce if I ever got a husband and that I remember (laughs) even when we saw everybody was laughing in the theater because it's so funny but shortly after that my favorite line of this movie is Harry comes home he's this war hero the town is literally putting on a celebration for him and you know he has the the wine glass and he says a toast to my big brother George the richest man in town um it's so sweet. It, it tugs at the heartstrings. For old acquaintance be forgot. And I, you know, I, I have a younger brother. I, I definitely have not done for him what George Bailey has done for Harry, but I would, you know. And so, like, I, I think it's really fascinating to see their brotherly relationship and that we don't see them a whole lot together, but just by seeing what George Bailey is willing to let go of so that his brother can make it is very very touching um, and really impactful so I also just really love the relationship between Mary and George because mm-hmm. Mary I think is truly one of the only people in this film that understands how much he has given up for everyone around him. And she just immediately starts calling people when she knows something is wrong with him to try and figure out what's going on. And then you know that her and Uncle Billy just call the whole town mm-hmm. and just call upon these favors. And she just, I I just think that's the epitome of what true love is and what it should be is like, you should understand those 
those deepest moments of your person and just go after everything to try and make sure that they're okay. And it just warms my heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, shoot, she gives up their own wedding money. Yeah. And the very yeah. Like, she doesn't give a second thought. She's like, hey, I got some right here. Yes. And it's like, are you sure you're really wanting to do this? <sighs> she gives up a lot too. I, I think yeah. it's kind of lies that Mary gives up a lot too. I mean, you know, she went to college. She could have gone and done something else. She could have gone to New York, but she... She could have married the rich Sam. <laughs> which uh, but <laughs> and you know that her all I mean her alternate life pretty much mimics what her life would have been without him she would have just been yeah. a librarian right it's yeah. like it's like everybody's life in the alternate reality of it all perfectly mimics what probably obviously would have happened if he wasn't born and that one I think that one hits the most for me though it's like what would have happened to Mary she would have just been a lonely woman that's mm-hmm. it and loneliness for her, it shouldn't be a thing because that's like, it's almost like West Side Story, like the one I just saw in the original one. She sees him from across the room in the gym and it's like love at first sight thing. They instantly attract, they fall into the pool, they walk home, they have the wonderful little like, I'll get the moon for you scene and boom, that's their, that's the beginning of their story. Yeah. Buffalo gals, can't you get, that song is stuck in my head for days after I watched this movie too, so I also want to, I was, I was told by Toby to also bring this up on how this movie does a lot with the plot of like never being born and how like a lot of movies have followed with that and borrowed from it. Mm. So can I bring up a few? Yes, absolutely. Okay. These are the three that I found plus the one I told you about earlier. So there is a Sesame Street special called Elmo Saves Christmas where it's similar except for Elmo wishes Christmas was every day what happens when Christmas is every day? But Bert and Ernie, the Muppets, and Bert and Ernie, yes. the characters in this movie, hear a line from this in that where it says, Bert and Ernie, you were there on my wedding night. And they're like, yeah, it's referencing that. Another film, The Family Man with Nicolas Cage, where in this case, it's what happens if I stayed with the woman I loved my alternate life. But the one that matters the most to me is it's a very merry Muppet Christmas movie where Kermit is trying to save the theater and they lose the money to pay off the mortgage. And he asks himself, what if I had never been born? What would have happened to the Muppets? That's, yeah, I love that. But a lot of egregious snubs here. Obviously we talked about, you know, Travers and Barrymore, but like really Donna Reed too. I mean, I... When she first shows up on screen, it reminds me of like when Ingrid Bergman shows up for the first time on screen in Casablanca. because it's kind of shot the same way. It's very much a close-up. They're kind of looking up and it's just like, I, she just demands the camera. Um, it's, that all, it's like that all-American girl performance, you know? Yes. This has that small town vibe to it. Absolutely. They all were robbed, in my opinion. Every yeah. single person... And this entire film was robbed so badly, (laughs) so, so badly. And you know what I think it is? You watch all of the other films that won this year, right? And they are all so damn depressing in one way or another. And not just like a little bit of the movie. Like I think the next one that we're going to talk about, like there ends up being a happy ending, which is great. 
but mm-hmm. most of the movie is really, really sad and it's really hard. And I feel like all of the movies from this year are like that in some way, except for Henry V. Henry V was just fucking weird and terrible in general. But this movie was so happy throughout, even with like the little sad moments of like, you know, him giving things up and then the what if I wouldn't have been born type of thing. Like, yes, that's sad, but then he it, it ends so happy and it's just so amazing. Do you watch it differently now than you did the first time? Because like when you first watch it, did you know the ending? No, I bawled like a fucking baby. Because like, I feel like if you're like when I first watched this, I didn't watch so college and I knew about it. So I kind of knew what happened. But um, I know, I know. <laughs> This was not like a family Christmas movie that we watched. So it will be for our children. It will be, but I. In 500 years, Christian, don't give me that face. I imagine like if you're watching it for the first time and you've never seen it before, don't know what happens. It, it probably feels a little more sad. Whereas on repeat viewings, you know, the way it ends, it, it's, it, it gives you joy. Would you say that? I don't know. I was really happy watching it the first time too, for the most part. Like if you're watching it and so much of the movie is like leading, learning about George Bailey mm-hmm. versus like the what if George Bailey wouldn't have been born. Right. Um, and I think that for me is happy. And like the, the moments where he's giving stuff up, there's also happy moments. Like mm-hmm. he's helping people and like, when they gave up their wedding money, Mary like did the whole honeymoon thing and the house for them. And like, then you get to see their kids and their home and how they fix up their home together. And I, all of that to me is just like kind of what life is about. And it makes me happy and warm and fuzzy inside <laughs> versus these other movies from the year are all really, really depressing. And I think, especially with the next one we're about to talk about that, they probably put a lot more weight on that considering the year that this mm-hmm. was 1946 with world war two, how that impacted people. And I think that's likely why this movie got so snubbed because let's be honest, 1946 wasn't exactly, it's a wonderful life for people. People were dealing with a lot of PTSD, like it's, it's really hard. So I think that's likely why this movie got robbed as badly as it did. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I clearly look at it a lot different since my own personal struggles, mm-hmm. but it's very uplifting to me still. I don't know. Yeah. It's given me all a, uh, <clears throat> it's given me a good uh, wedding gift idea though. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I ain't saying anything. Are you going to sing with us, uh, you and Toby, outside our, our home as we Maybe. <laughs> as, like, as you're like by the fire and stuff and you hear the singing and then you hear a brick being thrown through the window. <laughs> Just bring us a bottle of champagne, please. You can do the singing, but also bring the bottle of champagne instead of the brick. Okay. I'll throw the champagne much appreciate. the window. I'll throw the champagne. Okay, great. If you throw the champagne, I know where you live and you get to pay for a new window. 
Those are not cheap. I'll send well, you my bill. <laughs> like we said, a, a crime. This one didn't get any Oscar wins. It did get a technical achievement award. Um, I didn't notice this. Christian actually just put it on here, but for the development of a new method of simulating falling snow on motion picture sets. Like I said, it's absolutely beautiful the way they pulled that off. Um, and yeah, it, it looks great. So Merry totally understand that. Balls. Love it. Um, did get five nominations for best picture, best director. They do. They did love Frank Capra. So that makes sense. Um, James Stewart did get in for best actor. Thank goodness. Uh, sound recording and film editing were all of its nominations. But yes, no wins. I'm sure that will change when we get to our personal awards the next episode. But any other thoughts on It's a Wonderful Life before going on to our next or our best picture winner? Please go watch this quintessential holiday film. It is beautiful and amazing. The colorized version ain't that bad. Really? Okay. But watch yeah. the black and white. Yeah. And then you watch can the black watch, and white first. Yeah, yeah. Then you can watch the colored. And I did watch the black and white one for this one. I will say last year I watched colored because I was like, mm, I'm bored and I really don't want to click on the black and white one. So I do want to check out the colorized version at some point. I just, yeah, it's one I usually watch once a year. So I'm just going to have a year where I like watch it on like, I don't know, maybe Thanksgiving and Christmas and watch both. So all right. Well, we have reached the time for our best picture winner. Christian, would you like to take us away here? Yes, this is my big moment. All right. So this is our best picture winner, and it is the best years of our lives. To me, um, and I'm also supposed to say this for Toby as well, the quintessential what it means to be a best picture winner. One that specifically speaks to the times. Um, as Haley had mentioned actually before, the year is 1946. World War II had ended the year prior when this film was released. And this is about coming home and the effects of what happens when you come home from something like that. How not only your personal world changes, but the world around you as well changes on you. So it follows three individuals and their lives. First individual is Fred Deary. And he is a, he was a bomber in World War II, played by Dana Andrews. Um, he also has a wife played by Virginia Mayo, Marie Deary. Uh, their relationship is very interesting. We'll get into that, but it's, it's not a, well, I'll get into it now. It's not a very, it's not a George and Mary type situation. There's a lot of conflict there. Obviously he's been away for so long and he wants to come back to something and make a name for himself. You know, he wears his uh, uniform around to try and get a better job, but instead he gets reduced down to being a soda jerk again, which is what he was before he left for war with his boss going to be a teenager. Doesn't want that. Another is Homer Parrish, who was a Navy petty officer. Now with Homer Parrish played by Harold Russell, who we spoke about earlier, he has lost his hands in the war and he is coming home to a family that didn't know that he lost his hands in the war and to a fiance Wilma played by Kathy O'Donnell, who now has to adjust to this and he has to now adjust to living with this disability. His family has to help him with certain things. He doesn't, I feel he's more independent than a lot of people obviously will think of this. 
but he has his own struggles there, just not wanting the world to see him as something that he's not, not seeing him as a person with a disability, what have you. And then finally, we have Al Stevenson, played by Frederick March and his family with his wife, Myrna Loy, who is uh, his wife, Millie, and a daughter, Peggy, Teresa Wright, and a son. Oh, let me get an actor here. Somebody find me an actor. Anyway, he has a son also. So it's kind of that typical American family, two kids, what have you. He's a bit richer. I think he was a banker. But when he gets home, it's just family life again. Immediately, they want to go out. And he wants to get drunk. Life is back to normal, or so it seems. But again, this film, it is a three-hour film, but it goes by, for me anyway, it goes by in the flash. It is about the struggles of getting back into the reality of we're home, what next? I think the most endearing part about this is Dana Andrews story, especially when it's coming home. I want this job. I want something better for myself. But the world is like, mm, slow your rolls. There's too much out there for you right now. Like, we're not going to give you a job just because you're a war hero. Yada, yada, yada. Um, I think everybody in this film is great. This film is just beautiful as it is. William Wyler did a great job. The most heartbreaking scene and there's a bajillion and a half heartbreaking scenes in this, but it is when Frederick March's character comes home and it's a beautiful hallway shot where his wife turns the corner and they run into each other's arms, they embrace each other. And she calls her friends like, yeah, we can't make it to the party. It's my husband. My husband is home. But yeah, um, I really love this film, like super, super love it. I did not watch it for this podcast. I watched it earlier this year but it has stayed with me for so long in even last year when I had rewatched it for the second time to really sort of get into it more and getting into it and realizing that it is a perfect movie for its time. It's a perfect movie for the message it's sending that the reality is coming back from a war, be it World War II, be it World War I, Vietnam, that will later come. It's not going to be perfect at all for anybody. Everybody's going to have their internal issues. Maybe for right now, it is the quote unquote best years of our lives, but things sometimes don't work out for everybody. So, um, but yeah, that's it. I'm really passionate about this because I really, really loved it. So what say you two? I know you both haven't seen it, so. I really enjoyed this film. It would definitely be, like, obviously, I think everyone can probably tell It's a Wonderful Life is my favorite, <laughs> but this was like a very close second for me. And I just really, really enjoyed it. I will say, and this is just who I am as a human, nothing needs to be three hours long, but that is just who I am as a human. Give it to me in a shorter chunk. I understand why it was three hours long. Could have been a little shorter, just a, just a little for people like me. Um, but I will say, I thought it was a beautiful movie. Like the scenes that I got to like, that you see with them dancing, with all the storylines, with them coming back from World War II and what it's like for each of them individually to try and like, reintegrate themselves back into their lives and into their jobs. I think it does a really good job depicting how unsupportive 
our country was when people came back from World War II after the trauma that they had endured and also what our country still fails to do when people come back, especially for those who suffer from disabilities they may have incurred from the war or PTSD. Like we just, we just don't take care of people like we should uh, in general, but especially people who come back from war. Um, we just, we just don't take care of them like we should. Um, I which especially, is surprising, which is, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's very surprising for World War II because, you know, as you would say, we technically won that war, the United States, along with the allies. And it's like, okay, cool. You would expect to come home and get all this praise. And it's like, yay, good for you. Okay, now we don't care. Yeah, it was basically like a, oh, great. Welcome back. Get back to normal life. Buck up and get over it. Yeah. And it's like, no, that's that's not really how it works. Um, but I was also not surprised by that because we have just now as a society started talking about and prioritizing mental health and we are still light years from where we need to be with that. Um, I will say one of my favorite storylines and like relationships to watch throughout the entire film was between Homer and Wilma, I really just loved them. And I loved how Wilma just like wanted to take care of him and wanted to love him and let him know that she loved him after he came home. Um, despite like everything that he had gone through, despite him not being the same person. I know Homer was like really worried about having lost his hands and the amount of work that that meant Wilma would have to do to help take care of him in certain aspects. Um, I also just really loved that despite Homer talking about like some things that Wilma would have to do for him because of the fact that he'd lost his hands, he is also incredibly independent throughout the film and just very resourceful. And I think it shows like people with disabilities like are not less than just because they have disabilities and I really appreciated it that's what I got from his character and how he had learned to live with his disability and I think that's really important so I loved the film I thought it was great Homer and Wilma are two of my favorites throughout the entire film and I just thought it was really beautiful as well Yeah, I agree with pretty much everything that's been said. Um, it, it's terrific. I mean, I I think the thing about this movie is like, I can't believe this was made in 1946. Like this, this movie feels so ahead of its time while also being very much of its time. Um, but for a film to really reflect on that, that, this war just ended a year ago and really reflect on, um, you know, the veteran experience coming back to the States and the, the mistreatment and the denial of what they need at times is really cool that a movie took that on. And honestly, of course, I wish It's a Wonderful Life had won. But I also think it's really cool that the Academy awarded this movie um, because they, you know, it was clear that this, it struck a chord. It was very relevant. Um, so it's a really cool Best Picture winner and a very great Best Picture winner. Um, this isn't a year where I would say they got it wrong, you know, even though they didn't 
award my favorite movie of the lineup. I, you know, they, they awarded a really, really great film. So um, I just like how specific each character's arc is. Um, you know, they're not, in some ways, they're all going through very similar things, but they encounter them very differently. Um, Dana Andrews, like you said, trying to find work, um, Homer with, with his, and then um, Frederick March character, Al, with, with the alcoholism um, and the role that his family plays and all that. They're, they're all kind of experiencing, you know, what that is to be a veteran coming back, but in very different ways as well. And so I, I like that they weren't all put into the same box um, mm -hmm. and they all kind of had their own unique arcs. But I also really like how the families had their unique arcs as well. Um, Myrna Loy and Teresa Wright are doing what they can. They, they want to be supportive and they're both terrific in this movie. Um, Marie Derry is awful. I mean, she is the least supportive spouse you could come up with. That's, I mean, he, when Dana Andrews kind of basically shares like what, with what we know as now to be PTSD, she's pretty much like, just put it all behind you. Just forget it. It's over. Um, and in, in Homer's case, you kind of have like kind of this middle ground where like his family really wants to be supportive, but oftentimes they're doing more harm than good because they are kind of alienating him and making his disability kind of the primary factor of who he is, even though he's still Homer. Um, and so to see just the way that the film manages all of that, um, I honestly have no problem with the screen time. I'm glad it took the time it did to kind of go over all that and, um, or sorry, the running time. Um, I, I, to me, it kind of blew by. I remember we paused it. Um, I had to get up and like get a drink or something. I'm like, oh my God, we're an hour in, um, you know, we were already that far in. And so great performances all around. The ensemble's terrific. I'm really surprised Teresa Wright didn't get nominated just because she had so many nominations in the forties kind of leading up to this. I, it just surprises me that she was left out also surprises me that Dana Andrews was left out too. And I, I know that he would have been in lead alongside Frederick March, but I'm going to be honest. I preferred Andrews slightly. I mean, I think they're both terrific, but Andrews is terrific. Um, I prefer Jimmy Stewart over both of them personally, but they're both terrific. Um, I think what's really interesting to think about is, and I don't want to get too deep in the specifics, but the category placements, um, Harold Russell specifically, I wanted to look at, cause like I do, the movie is about those three, but I think for me, it did kind of feel like Andrews and March were more the leads and he kind of was supporting just cause I think there are more moments through the film where he's not on screen. And I got interested in looking and like, um, Matthew Stewart, who does like the times, all the, the performances, Harold Russell is in 48 minutes and um, Frederick March is in an hour and three minutes. So there's really not that much difference. I'm not sure where Andrews is because he wasn't nominated. Um, I'm not sure if he has that somewhere else, but I don't know. What did you think? Did, did you see Russell as a supporting as well? Or what did you think? Yeah, I did. Um, because I think that this story, I don't know, it focuses more on Al Stevenson, Frederick March, and Dana Andrews, because especially when Dana Andrews starts to put himself into Al's family as yes. well, there's that whole situation with Teresa Wright's character as well. So it's like, now we're going to focus on this more. 
but we also want you now to get a glimpse, a brief glimpse at one other individual whose story we're also going to tell, which is now Harold Russell's character. So again, that's a more of a supporting feel to it. I don't think you can load the, I mean, in category placements, I don't think you want to load this up too much. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. right. What do you think? Wasn't Harold Russell, though, not like an actual actor? Not a professional actor. Um, okay. Yeah. Maybe that's why... I mean, maybe that's why he didn't have as much screen time as the other two. Yeah, and I thought about that too. And like, he's not even on the poster. Um, like the, and obviously this is a marketing thing, but the poster is like Loy, Marsh, Andrews, Wright, and even Mayo, um, and Russell's not on it. So I think that's probably part of the reason why he would have gotten less screen time potentially, but also campaigned more in supporting or, or gone in the supporting category. But it is interesting to think about because he is such a big character. But I agree. I, like, I, I just feel like because their families intersect more, Stevenson and, or Marsh and Andrews are the leads. Um, and Russell is a very strong supporting character. His, um, let me see, because I was going to bring this up and I just want to see. Okay, so Harold Russell, he sold his Oscar for this movie, the supporting actor one, for $60,000 at auction supposedly to pay for his wife's medical bills. Although if you look at like the Wikipedia article, it says that that's kind of disputed, but he did keep the honorary one that he received. Aww. So I, and what I was looking at is like, where did that Oscar go? Because right. you're not supposed, I mean, you're not supposed to give those up. So I don't know exactly where the, that went. Well, you're not supposed to give that up because if you do give it up, the Academy will sell it or will buy it to you for like a dollar or something like that. Yeah. I think like the yeah. rule now is you have to sell it back to him for a dollar or something. Or yeah. Like that. So. Um, but just like his life was interesting because I believe he lost his hands in a training accident. Um, okay. So on June 6th on D-Day, exactly D-Day, while he was an army instructor teaching demolition work with the U.S. 13th Airborne Division in North Carolina, a defective fuse detonated TNT explosives that he was handling. And that's how he lost his hands. Yeah. I also want to bring up that um, William Wyler is a went to World War II, as did Frank Capra as well, right. both filming on the battlefield. Read the book and watch the documentary. Five came back. You'll learn more about it. So William Wyler has especially a deep connection to this for that reason alone, that yeah. he has seen the horrors of war. He, fil- he filmed. He's like one of the reasons we have footage from a lot of the battles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Harold Russell, the other interesting thing about him, like we said, not a professional actor and he did do a little bit more after this, but it wasn't until like 34 years, like his next credit was in 1980. Um, and he did a few different things throughout the eighties and nineties, like looks like kind of smaller roles, but like, yeah. Interesting. What's, what's the one from 1980? What's the movie he's in? Inside Moves. That's the one. Um, Anthony, our good friend, he's always telling me to watch that one because he's always reminding me like Harold Russell is in it. So I'm familiar with that one. Interesting. Yeah. No, that's a cool win. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm glad he got two Oscars, but it is such an Academy thing. Just being like, oh, yeah, he's not going to win. So but yeah, that kind of sucks. How do you feel about like what does that say to your your personal feelings? Like, oh, they don't think I'm going to win like yeah and then you do when you're like fuck you guys i mean i think like even recent recent history has shown us that like the oscars should not assume 
Right. I mean, if you look at the the whole incident last year where they moved best actor to the end, seemingly because they thought it was going to honor Chadwick Boseman, then he didn't end up winning. You should just never assume, you know, that that's, that's the lesson here. It worked out okay because the guy walked away with two Oscars, but still. It's interesting. So he did, I'm looking, he did win a special achievement award at the Golden Globes that year. Nice. And yeah, because he, he didn't, I don't, it doesn't list nominations for that year, but Clifton Webb won. So okay. he was recognized in various ways in that regard. It's like, yeah, yeah here's some more special stuff. Right. But yeah, the whole cast is great. I, I really love this scene kind of near the beginning where like they're all on the plane and they're, um, or no, when they're actually in the car, um, in the taxi, going back to their respective homes, they're all like kind of pointing out the windows and going like, oh, there's the football field. And, oh, there's you know, my uncle's bar. And they're so excited about it. And it, it's really just a reflection, like these people know their hometown really well. This is nothing that's new for them, but they've been away for so long, been going through the horrors of war in that time they've been away that it's almost like everything is new again. Um, mm -hmm. The kind of excitement that it brings. And that's, I don't know, from the get-go, it, it's a really effective scene. So it almost made me cry when they came home and he couldn't believe how old his children were. Mm. Because I think that would just be so devastating to have children and then to miss that much of their lives yeah. because you are away in war and you come back and they are just completely different people than who you left them as. Like, I, I just can't imagine. I just can't even imagine how heartbreaking that must have been. And it broke my heart to like watch that. Mm -hmm. And even like, um, I always get, I always get emotional when Homer gets home and he literally hugs everybody. They clearly are not, you know, they're not thinking about his hands or not. And then when he's waving to his friends goodbye and he salutes and then you just see the hooks and everybody's just like, they're taken aback. Right. It's like, what? We didn't know any of this. Yeah. And it's like in that moment, they're not even feeling for the hands that are embracing them right now. It's like, right. they don't care. It's like, boom, that's shocking enough for them. That's always gets me. Yeah. And just the journey home itself, like the, obviously this was 1945, you know, into the war when the, the film is set, like you couldn't just call up your family and say, Hey, I'm coming home today. You know, mm -hmm. the, the families didn't really know exactly when they were coming home the men didn't know when they were coming home because there were so many soldiers flying back that they have trouble finding a plane. I mean, they basically have to get on a cargo plane that's making a ton of stops along the way just to get home. So I really, I, I liked how it presented that aspect as well, because I don't think that's something that, you know, maybe everybody was knowledgeable about. I'm going to, I'm going to, I love, look, I love Harold Russell's story. This is life story, but it, this is sad. Okay, so he earned 10000 under 10000 for this performance, and he did not receive any residual profits off of this. That's so crazy. they really didn't think like he was going to do much with it. Yeah, wow. And he's great. Yeah, he's so good. He's one of my favorites throughout the whole film. He's just so wholesome. I love him. So good. 
Yeah, it, and it did gross a lot of money. I mean, looking at budget estimated about two million worldwide gross twenty three million, so huge profits obviously resonated. I have one last bit of good news. Okay. <laughs> See, you got to read things in context. His Oscar is around. Now the Academy has it. The person who secretly bought it anonymously was producer and executive Lou Wasserman. A lot of, uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Lou Wasserman, forgive me if I don't know who that is entirely. <laughs> His name though is in Hollywood legend. I, cause I've heard it before. Yeah. So somebody in Hollywood bought his Oscar and donated to the Academy. So it's not missing. That's good. Probably in their new museum. Hopefully. Yeah. John, if you're listening, was it? Did you see it? (laughs) Christian, do you want to go everything that this won and what it was nominated for? Yes. Okay. So it Well, let's start with the honorary, of course, for Harold Russell who also picked up supporting actor. And then it won picture director for William Wyler, Frederick March for actor, the adapted screenplay, which is again, kind of surprising because it's like what within a year turnaround. Yeah. Um, Film editing score. And then it was additionally nominated for sound recording. That's the only thing it did not win. Yeah. Pretty good haul. I I think I read that it was like a, it was a novella that was published in 1945 that it was based on. So I guess my final thought on this movie is that in a previous episode for 1944, we talked about Since You Went Away, which is also like a three-hour movie. I think like this is a good double feature because Since You Went Away is more so about like Homefront during World War II and was made during that time and is really, really good. And of course, this is about afterwards, um, kind of at home. So that would be my, my recommended double feature. Your, do- your six-hour double feature. Six-hour double feature. <laughs> yeah. Not for me. Not not for Haley, but <laughs> both are very good. So, all right. Any final thoughts on the best years of our lives? It was really good. If one had to win over It's a Wonderful Life, I'm glad that it was this one. Yes, I agree. And I got it for you guys for Christmas last yes. year. Yeah. Yes, we have the Blu-ray. So the Warner archives, it's, it's, it's perfect. It's beautiful. Thank goodness for them. So, all right, well now we are going to go ahead and rank these nominees, probably pretty clear from our thoughts, but um, we'll, we'll go ahead and start this. I'll go first. Um, number five, of course, I do have Henry V. Number four, I went with the razor's edge slightly over that. I have the yearling. And then big gap, number two, the best years of our lives. Number one, it's a wonderful life. Haley, what do you got? So number five, Henry V. I'm actually going to change up from what I told you earlier. Oh. Um, Number four, the yearling. And the reason I do this to you all is because I just kept thinking about the yearling and the razor's edge And I just appreciated The Razor's Edge more as a film. And also The Yearling has like a really weird, like, hi, the thankful for our fathers who stole this land, blah, 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 at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, I forgot about that. And, you know, I just think we should appreciate the fact that 
you know, we stole this land from indigenous people instead of thanking a bunch of white people who murdered <laughs> tons of people. Yep. So that is why the yearling drops for me. Good point. Number three, the razor's edge again because of the yearling and then jump a huge gap like 550 miles across the universe and you have the best years of our lives followed by it's a wonderful life in my number one spot all right well after that twist christian how about you all right so at number six i have henry v and number five um over henry v i'd even have world war ii again the entirety of world war ii from pearl harbor 1941 when we got into the war to the end of the war over henry v and then i have and then i have the razor's edge the yearling the best years of our lives and it's a wonderful life all right well we we told toby the night off because we originally all had the same ranking but i don't think much would change since i don't think it's yeah i don't think it wouldn't change at all um so basically what what christian and i said would would be the overall ranking between us so overall between the three of us we say the best film from this crop of nominees is it's a wonderful life but we all agree the best years of our lives is a great winner to me, I, I need to look at my list, but I think it's going to be a top tier best picture winner for me. It's so good. Um, so the, the Academy, they didn't get it wrong. We just have another preference. Let's put it that way. That's just, this is the second episode with Haley and both times we have that same opinion on the yeah, best picture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What so, can I say? I'm always right. <laughs> This is true. I, I have to agree with that. So. Yes, you do. <laughs> I have it on record now. This is wonderful. But yes. Um, so those are our thoughts on the nominees. But as always, this is not where it ends. We will be back with more films from 1946. I can guarantee it's not going to be that quick this time. This is our third episode in as many weeks. We're going to take a little, we're going to take our time a little bit with this one. We've got the holidays coming up. We've got 2021 movies to catch up on, so it might be a bit before that episode comes out, but we will be back with six more films from 1946. We'll have a lot of honorable mentions. We'll go over our personal awards, and we will see if It's a Wonderful Life is still on top for all of us. Or will we be back? Bum, bum, bum. Wow. All right. That went dark. (laughs) It was a dark year. (laughs) But yes, um, as always, rate, review, subscribe, Apple Podcasts. Um, please don't give us one-star reviews, even if you, you, know, you love Shakespeare, power to you. Um, but follow us wherever you get your podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. Thanks as always to Joshua Arnoldi for doing our theme music. Um, Haley, thank you for joining us. Any final thoughts from you for this episode? Um, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed being here. Don't watch Henry V. It sucks. <laughs> Correct. Christian, any final thoughts from you? I'm just going to spoil this right now. You all need to tune into the next episode because we will be talking about Song of the South. Oh. And that's going to be so controversial. 
I've seen it before. I, I cannot wait to hear your guys' opinion. I have it ready for you whenever you're ready because I got the link. It'll probably be the last one we watch just to go in with, with yeah. the freshness of it all. So get anticipated, also, listeners. I also picked a movie that is less than two hours long. So yep. That's true. The first thing I think all of these, I think all of these are two or less. Yeah. The the this year the nominees were pretty long, but yeah, the ones that we picked aren't aren't quite at that range. So I wonder why. <laughs> but yes, tune in next time and we will go from there. Bye.